Let me invite you this morning. We're going to make our way to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. We've been coming through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse, section by section. And uh, so we've entered into chapter 6 last week, and so we're continuing in here, verse 5 down through verse number 9. You know, we're coming down to where we've only got a few messages left in Ephesians, and I'm kind of sad, but I'm kind of excited for what's next at the same time. Um, looking back at all that we've studied together through this great book, uh, it's been truly rich, and I uh, look forward to finishing it well, but also uh, what we'll div- dive into next. Um, not sure yet, so I'm not going to give you a preview, so I'll, we'll, we'll get there when we get there, um, but we know we'll, we'll go into another book <clears throat> very soon. But uh, this morning, we're going to look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. The title of the message is, The Master We Labor to Please. The Master... We labor to please, and this is yet another passage of great application, uh, very direct to our lives, and I'll give you the context for it all, and we'll see some application for it as well. But let's read our text and then dive in together. Paul, in this writing, he says to the church in Ephesus, "'Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ.'" not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Have you ever thought to, or ever sought, rather, sought to intentionally please another person with your work? Now, if you've ever worked in any job in this world, and I'd say the majority of us probably have, uh, that is an intention of yours in the workforce. Unless you just don't care about your job at all, you are mindful of doing what the boss expects and fulfilling your duties and doing them well. And that should be our conviction. That should be our practice. Now, I remember how nervous I was with my first job as a bagger boy at Kroger. Uh, Bagger boy, you know how that first job always goes. But that was my first secular job in the world. And uh, they would have employee reviews, even for us lowly baggers. I thought, surely we can't do anything wrong, but everyone got to go see the manager, and they would do a review of how their work was going and talk to them about that. And, and uh, I knew my review day was coming up soon, and man, I was nervous. I always wanted to do what was best, to please the boss, do my job right. And I knew that there was one day that I forgot what time it was, and I clocked in for my break just a few minutes late. All right, and having not been in the workforce at all, I thought, man, they, they're going to note that, and I'm going to get reprimanded, and I'm going to have all these things against me. I was nervous. Uh, I was worried about that. But thankfully, I went up to that review, and it didn't get brought up. It wasn't a major violation. I didn't hear, you're fired, you know, go home. And uh, it went smoothly. But all through that process, my mind was on whether or not I had pleased the boss, whether I had done my job well. And I think that should be, that should be the mindset of the Christian worker with others who are over them in whatever vocation they're called to do their job. Now, I say that by way of introduction to 
to show you that there's going to be some application with this as we come through the text of what we're reading. But in this text of Scripture, Ephesians, this passage, Paul is continuing this line of thought in regard to being filled with the Spirit and living in submission in a particular vocation, whatever our calling may be. And one of those areas here is the arena of labor and also leadership. This text is easily applied to the Christian in the workforce, and rightly so, but I think it is important for us to understand that Paul's direct context in his day is not to the Christian bagger at Kroger, but rather to a slave who serves a master in that day and culture. Now, we will see the cultural and historical context for this in a moment. But here's what I want us to gather through this whole message. Central to Paul's exhortation here is the fact that no matter what kind of labor you are involved in or are committed to, every Christian has a greater master that they are accountable to. Beyond even the temporary boss you may have, whatever vocation, whatever avenue it is that you're in, You and I as Christians, we have a greater master that we live for. A greater master that we are accountable to, and that master is who? It is Christ Jesus the Lord. The one true King. The one Lord of lords and King of kings over all things. Now, how can we please Christ in our labor? As workers, as servants, in whatever context that might be. What about those who are in authority over others and have people serving under them? How are they to act? You see, Paul gives some great instruction here for Christians in his day that brings application for us in our day. But also, I think there are some undergirding principles here that would affect the problem of slavery in general. And I want us to view that as well. So, number one in our notes here this morning... We see the instruction, very plainly, is to Christian bondservants. The instruction to Christian bondservants. Now, I want to point out, and I think this is important, the reality, first, of bondservants in history. The reality of bondservants in history. Now, this particular section of Scripture has generated some questions and often some negative feedback from the world around us. So, why is that? Because Paul is addressing the issue of slavery, and how both the slave and the master were to live in that dynamic in that day and time. Now, you'll notice in this text that Paul does not call for them to abolish slavery, but how to live in the context of that. Now, I'll get to that in a moment, because I think there's an undergirding reason why he doesn't give that that promotion. But often, here's what you see, is that The text here is often used as a springboard only to give application to the modern-day workplace. And by all means, there is application here for the modern-day workplace. We're going to see that shortly. But with every text that we read and study, I hope you all understand this, and while we come through books expositionally, every text that we read and study must be understood with the audience relevance in view. What do I mean by audience relevance? What did this passage mean when Paul wrote it to the hearers who first heard it? I don't know about you, but we don't live in ancient Ephesus, do we? 
There is an entirely different context, culturally, historically, and what they experienced and what they were going through. And so what Paul says and why he says what he says matters. There are cultural and historical contexts to consider in every passage of the Bible. And understand this, that not considering the cultural and historical context leads to many false interpretations of various passages. And so you have to understand how to interpret the Bible when it comes to these matters. If we neglect those contexts, we will miss the true meaning of the text and how important it is. So in this text before us, who does Paul address specifically in verse 5? He addresses bondservants. Bondservants, just like through this passage, he's addressed wives. He's addressed husbands. He has addressed children. He has addressed Parents. And now he's addressing bondservants. What is a bondservant? The word used here refers to a male slave as an entity in a socioeconomic context. Now, we're going to see this reality of bond slaves was very prevalent in the first century, in New Testament times. How do you know that? Because there's many references and instructions given to Christians who were in that position in that era of time in the New Testament. Now, I want to give you some historical and cultural background here, and then we'll get into more of the text as we come through it. In the Roman Empire, in in most of the ancient world, slavery was a very common institution. Very common institution. Now, what exactly is slavery? I give you some notes here. You can see this. Slavery is the practice of one person owning another as property or one person owing a debt to another and repaying that debt via their labor. So, there were various forms of slavery in the ancient world. And By the way, there's various forms of slavery even today. You know what Proverbs teaches even in the financial realm? He, te- the, he teaches us uh, that the borrow, it, borrower is what? Slave to the lender. You've got to pay it back, Right? So so there's different avenues that you could view this term slavery. It's often used in a very negative sense, and it is a negative thing when we look at it uh, rightly. But understand that there's various forms of it in the ancient world. No single description of slavery fits the various forms it took in the ancient world. However, it was quite different from the slavery practice in the West, as in, in our area of the world, in the 18th and 19th centuries. So when we speak of slavery, we hear that word, we most often immediately think of uh, the Civil War and the liberation of the slaves here in our own nation. Slavery in our own nation was a gross evil that I'm glad it's done, glad it's gone. It should not be, right? The slavery practice in recent centuries was very much racial and lifelong. Slavery in Paul's day was not primarily racial. Most of it was not racial at all, and it was not always lifelong either. Now, there may be some similarities between Paul's day and recent centuries, for not all slave owners in the ancient world treated their slaves well, but it was different from the slavery we read of in our own nation's history. Now, here here I want you to understand this. Though slavery is evil, I'm going to just make that clear, I do not agree with slavery in any way whatsoever. Though slavery is evil, it was universally accepted in ancient times. It's estimated that there were nearly 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. 
One century before Paul wrote this letter to Ephesus, it was reported that Julius Caesar shipped back to Rome about one million slaves. Slaves made up from anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of the population. You see, this kind of information makes you think and ask, well, how did these people become slaves? How does a person get in their life to where they're at that point? Well, slavery could take the form of debt slavery. In other words, you owe somebody, so you're going to work it off. You belong to them until you work it off. It could be in which they sold themselves or their children to clear debts. It could be that they are in slavery for, as punishment for a crime. Could be that they were born, uh, the birth of children were born to slaves, so they're born in that life. The enslavement of victims as a result of, uh, of war. There's various ways people could have been slaves in ancient times. Now, slavery was not always just some forced kidnapping. Sometimes it was voluntary. Sometimes somebody needed help and say, I will work for you for this amount of time and, and to pay off this or to do this, and they would accept that ownership. So they became slaves in various ways. The condition of their slavery largely depended upon the owner. Many slaves, if not most, were subject to very harsh conditions, very harsh treatments under tyrannical masters. Then other slaves had it a lot better. Some had masters that treated them fairly and gave them good reward, even gaining, giving them freedom at a certain point. And some of them who were formerly slaves and gained freedom gained high social status in the world. For one example, in commentary I read, referenced that Felix. You remember Felix, the Roman governor of Judea. Felix, the one who Paul was brought before, was at one time a slave, but managed to gain freedom and establish and gain political position. So, so slavery was not identical for every single slave, but slavery overall was a general practice. In the Roman world, it was so much a general practice throughout their culture that the majority didn't have any indication about it being unlawful or wrong. What's the Bible say about slavery? Is it tolerable or is it wrong? What do we read about? Well, Scripture gives various laws and instructions for Israel in the Old Testament regarding slavery. Slavery was around before the law, and it was around after the law. So understand that the law didn't institute slavery. What God does through the law is regulates it to a godly manner, because it was not something that was just going to be eradicated entirely at that time. You see, outside of Israel, slaves had zero rights. Inside of Israel's law... Slaves had rights. The form of slavery under the law among Israelites sometimes had mutual agreement, like I mentioned earlier, such as someone being willing to serve another for a certain number of years to pay a debt or produce a livelihood or take care of their family. They would go free after six years. You can read various laws of that in the Old Testament. Now, slavery in the Old Testament, among Israel, among the Jews, it was not oppressive. It was not forced slavery like we commonly think of. Although there may have been some occasions when in battle when they had to take slaves for certain issues. You read about that in the Old Testament. But here's what I want you to see through this. While the Old Testament does not condemn slavery outright, the Bible shows us the undergirding truth of why slavery is not the will of God. I don't have time to dig into all of those things, but I'm laying this foundation so you understand the cultural context here. Many principles in Scripture undergird the fact that slavery is against God's order and should be abolished. To give you a few, 
Every person is made in the image of God. Not one is better than another. And slavery often produces that mentality that I'm superior to you and you're inferior to me. That is how it's often been used. Scripture teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That undergirds and opposes slavery. There's several other things that I could bring out. Scripture plainly says in, in the law in Exodus 21.16 that forced slavery is unlawful here. Exodus 21.16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. There was laws against that sort of slavery. So understand that much of the slavery that you read of in the Old Testament, it was mutual. Someone selling themselves, not being taken. Now, Paul does write in the New Testament. If you look at 1 Timothy 1, 8-11 for a moment. 1 Timothy 1, 8-11. Paul mentions how forced slavery is evil. He lists it with all the other sins that we would condemn. You look at 1 Timothy 1, 8-11. Notice this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality. And notice this next word, enslavers. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You notice what Paul lists among all these other sins. Enslavers. What is an enslaver? It's one who acquires a person or persons for use by others. Sometimes it's translated as kidnappers or men-stealers. But bottom line is, this is what Paul lists this with. Now, there are those who force people into slavery for their own corrupt gain. And I believe that slavery, without a doubt, is an indefensible evil and has been used for evil by many evil men throughout history. Paul encouraged those who were slaves to seek freedom if they had that opportunity. 1 Corinthians 7, 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So here's my question. If Paul believed that slavery was not really the plan of God, not the moral plan of God, why didn't he push for the abolition of slavery? This is where uh, many people on the outside, they try to condemn the scriptures and condemn us. Well, the Bible promotes slavery. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Let me give you a few reasons, and I gave these in your notes. Why didn't Paul push for the abolition of slavery? Well, one reason I think of is that Christianity was still in its infancy, And the primary mission of Christianity was not to immediately change the socioeconomic landscape. Its primary mission is what? The gospel. It's the gospel to preach Christ and Him crucified and teaching them all things that Christ has commanded, all of His law. And so its primary primary mission is the spread of the gospel. Now, what happens when the gospel changes the hearts of both masters and slaves? their worldview begins to change. You see, the more Christianity spreads, the more it would impact the sinful practices of the culture. Slavery was an economic reality that was not going to be changed at that time. But by the spread of the gospel and its impact on cultures and ultimately nations at large, the problem of slavery would be greatly impacted. 
You see, the abolition of slavery without the gospel of Christ does nothing to bring lasting change that people really need, does it? Law doesn't change people's hearts. The gospel does. The gospel changes people's hearts. And as the gospel changes people's hearts, that person comes to have Christian values and convictions. Now, as we look at history, it has been Christians at the forefront of the movement to abolish slavery. Where Christianity has overwhelmingly spread, slavery has slowly died. Now, don't mistake me, slavery is still a major problem in our world. Major problem in our world. I looked up some statistics. There there are still millions of people, they estimate, that are bound in slavery. 71 or more percent higher of them are women because of sex traffickers. You see, all forms of slavery must be abolished, and those who engage uh, in such practices should receive justice. But understand that slavery, it's an enemy that can be put to death only through the gospel power. But second reason why Paul did not usher forth abolition of slavery here. Paul's instructions and teachings, they subtly undermine the very foundations of slavery in a way that take it down from within. One, the gospel, obviously. But with his instructions in our text, he's redefining the relationship between masters and slaves in a way that is totally countercultural. He is speaking properly about this issue without condoning it. He does not condone it. You'll notice how he does this. He does this primarily by making clear to both the master and the slave that they are both equal in the eyes of Christ. Christ is Lord over both of them. Over both of them. So, so Paul's main intention here, understand, is to give them the Christian way to live within this context at that time. But thirdly, Paul's main intention here in this text is not about society, it's about the home and application of Christ to the home. Now, Paul knows this. He knows that in this letter, that it's going to be read to the church, there's going to be husbands listening, wives listening, children listening, parents listening. He also knows there's bondservants there, and there's masters there. He knows they're mixed in with the congregation. He knows this. And so many, if not most, of the slaves of that day and time, many of them lived in the same home as their masters. You see, this all ties together in the relational connections Paul has been emphasizing. That has been his focus. And so at the core of this, Christ is to be central. Christ is to be central in every relational connection, whether it's immediate family, whether it's your your boss or employee, or in that day and time, the masters and slaves. And so with this cultural and historical background, What's Paul say to them? Now we come into kind of exegeting a little further. Notice with me, letter B, the responsibility of bondservants in Christ. What's Paul tell them? You see what we're talking about. I hope you see this. and Why I say what I say. Why Paul is saying what he's saying. The responsibility of bondservants is very plain and clear. In verse 5, he says, Bondservants, obey your masters, your earthly masters, with fear and trembling. You know, Paul's continuing this this same theme of submission that began back in verse uh, 21 of chapter 5. 
There's, there's elements of submission in every aspect here. The wife is submissive to her husband. The husband is submissive to Christ and loves his wife in that way. Children are to submit to their parents. And so forth we come to here. The bond slave was not to be contrary and grievous to them. They were to recognize their earthly authority over them. And that's why Paul says for them to obey with fear and trembling. This statement communicates reverence for their earthly master in their obedience. Now, I mentioned this earlier and I'll point it out to you. Why, we, why, why this is a prevalent thing. We see references all through the scriptures regarding this issue. In the New Testament, Paul wrote to Titus in your notes, Titus 2, 9-10. through 10. Notice what he says to them. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, but not pilfering, pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. There's another reference. He said to Timothy, Timothy 6.1, 1 Timothy 6.1, Let all who are under the yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and teaching may be, not be reviled. So there's no mistaking the reference here to obedience for bondservants to their masters. They were to submit to them. They were to obey them, so long as that obedience did not violate the law of God, of God's word, in which he was supposed to, they're supposed to heed. But notice also they were to work wholeheartedly in this. Look at verse 5 again. Okay, we come to verse 5. He says to them, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So what's Paul communicating to them here? They weren't to do their jobs halfway or with little effort. They were to do their best. They were to do their all. They were to give their heart in whatever it is their work was. Now, this is another point to understand here. Sometimes we automatically think slavery, well, they're out there chipping rocks in a quarry or something, right? No. Many slaves were very well-educated and had good skills and played a major role in the home and in the economy. Some slaves were more educated and skilled than the masters who owned them. They did a great variety of work, much of it being very meaningful to society. Their jobs mattered, and they needed to be done well. And not only for the job's sake, as in, okay, I'm going to do this job well, Paul is telling them to do what? Do your job well with your whole heart for Jesus' sake, for Christ's sake, as unto Him. You see, Christ here is mentioned in every verse of this text. Christ is the centerpiece. This is the whole point. This is about living in Christ in whatever context you are living. Both the slave and the master are accountable to Christ, ultimately. Now, since the focus is upon pleasing Christ, you notice that Paul says, verse 6, he says for them to work not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Do you know what kind of person this is? This is the kind of worker who acts like he's working when the boss rounds the corner. And when the boss rounds the corner the other way, he goes back to piddling around, not really working that hard. Now, I watch this happen all the time, and I'll pro- I was probably guilty of it a few times as a teenager, but I learned and grew out of that. Several, several co-workers I worked with, teenagers about my age, and I'd watch them piddle around and piddle around, and then the boss come, 
and I see them, they got their cleaning out, and they're cleaning the cash register, and they're cleaning everything. Boss goes down an aisle, and they put it away, and they just get back to piddling again. It's really funny when the boss knows what they're doing, they sneak up behind them when they're not doing anything, say, what you doing? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. So here, here's the truth. For all workers, it's that all our labor as Christians, understand this, it's not just to an earthly boss or master, it is to the Lord. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if you're cleaning toilets or flipping burgers or you're, you're managing a, 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 a billion-dollar company. You do it unto Christ. You do it unto the Lord. All our work must be done to the best of our ability with our hearts. Colossians 3.23, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Christian, you are to do everything in view of Christ. I wish more Christians would get that today. That Christ is not limited to the church house and this is His domain. His domain is everywhere. There's not a square inch of this world that does not belong to our Lord. He has all authority. Every little thing that you and I do, it is as unto Him. The one who reigns over creation. The one in which we live for, who's been saved by, who we've been saved by. Now, we see why that's so greatly emphasized. Notice this. Paul emphasizes to the slave to work wholeheartedly and willingly for their master for this reason. In verse 6, what does he call them? He says them to be working as bondservants of who? Of Christ. Now, they're already a bondservant of an earthly master, but Paul points out the main issue here, the main thing. They are first and chiefly a bondservant of Christ. What's that mean? It means that though they have an earthly master that may be perverse and vile, they have a heavenly master that is perfect, that is worth living and working for, even if my earthly boss, not so good. See, being a slave to Christ is the greatest freedom anyone could ever have. The slave of Christ, understand this, this is not in a negative connotation whatsoever. The slave of Christ has been set free from the bondage of sin and death. Do you remember what Jesus said? He who, who commits sin is the servant, the slave of sin. You understand that all of humanity is a slave to sin outside of Christ. Their own nature, their depravity, they're bound to sin. Can't escape it. Guess what? There is a penalty that comes with sin they also can't escape except through Christ. And that penalty is death. The judgment of God. You see, the slave of Christ, friend, the bond slave of Christ, has been set free from sin and death. They have been gifted an inheritance of eternal life and have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, as Paul opened this letter with. The glorious doxology, blessed be God and our Father who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's what we have in Him. And so understand that every Christian is a slave of Christ. You are chosen, you are called, you are commanded to obey Him as Lord and Master. Now Paul makes this plain to us in 1 Corinthians 7.22. 
He says, he who, has, who, who was called in the Lord, that's someone who's saved. He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, what does he say about them? Is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when, when called is a bondservant of Christ. I want you to understand that that is the best position any one of us could ever have. It's to be bound unto Christ, the perfect master. Paul Washer rightly said this, the freest man on the face of the earth is the one who makes himself a slave to a perfect master. There's never been a perfect master in all of the history of slavery and all of the corruption, never been. But Christ is a perfect master with immeasurable freedom. The Christian may be a slave on earth in this bondservant context, but he is a son of the living God for all of eternity. Galatians 4, 7, he says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir. Join heirs with Christ. And so because of this truth, the slave was also to do their work willingly, as Paul says in verse 6. He says, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. So you understand that these slaves were to work from the heart with a good attitude about them, willingly. Because they're not doing it just for that earthly master, they're doing it for the Lord. Attitude is everything. Our heart is everything. He said, well, what, about, what if their master was, you know, vile and unreasonable at times? Peter answers that question. 1 Peter 2, 18-19, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Has anybody ever had a bad boss? Y'all ain't lying in church, are you? We've all had bad bosses, corrupt people who were unreasonable and didn't treat us right. What's our call as a Christian? To bite our boss's head off and to say, no, you ain't going to make me do that? No. Peter says, servants be subject to them, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Why? Because... As a Christian, this attitude, this godly disposition and humble submission to do your work as to the Lord, it is a powerful testimony and witness of the Christ who dwells within you. Now notice with me letter C. We see the reward for bondservants from God. There's a reward for them, something for them to expect and look forward to. If you look at verse 8, he says to them that they were to do their work knowing that whatever good anyone does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he be bondservant or free. Now, you notice that Paul lumps together all Christians here. Bondservant or the free. Why does he do that? Because every Christian, doesn't matter if they were a slave or they weren't a slave, every Christian has a day of reward coming for their faithful service and labor in whatever circumstance they may have been in in life. Paul said similar to the Colossians, Colossians 3.24, a parallel passage. says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So the bond slave was to labor knowing that the Lord would bless them for their Christian response in their work. Now, sometimes the Lord may bless us in this life as a result of faithfulness, but ultimately, 
If we suffer to the day we die, Christian, there is a day of peace and joy and rewarding that will be like no other. It will be worth it all in the end. Paul said in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether good or evil. You understand the Lord keeps a record of everything. There's not one act that goes unnoticed. He's an omnipotent, omniscient God. And there's a day of judgment coming. And those harsh, vile masters, they'll receive their due reward. But those Christian slaves who loved the Lord and were obedient and did their best in their work, they would be greatly rewarded with this. So doing such from the heart, it would be a great gospel witness and bring great reward in the end. That brings me to number two. And this won't be near as long as the first one. I say that cautiously. The instruction to Christian masters. The instruction to Christian masters. Because the instruction of the masters is one verse. The instruction of the slaves is like four verses, right? Notice in verse 9, he says, Masters do the same to them. Who are the masters? They're the earthly ones who are over them. One who is in charge by virtue of possession. These are the people the bond slaves are instructed to submit, obey. But notice that Paul says that the masters do the same to them. What's, what is it the they're supposed to do? What's the same thing they're supposed to do? They were to respect and treat them well. Just as a slave was to respect their master and treat them well. They were to do all that they were called to do as masters as to the Lord. As to the Lord. You see, their heart was to also be set upon Christ. So the masters over the bondservants were to have Christ at the center of their thinking and their interactions with those who were under them. They were to recognize the valued humanity of their slave and treat them the right way. Similarly to how Jesus described the treatment towards his people when they were in great need. Matthew 25, 40, Jesus said this, The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So you understand that the master was to treat his slaves in a right manner. Especially if they were Christians. Now, as a Christian master, they're treating them well regardless. But you understand, if you have a, a Christian slave and a Christian master, those two people, brothers and sisters in Christ, they're family. And this is how we ought to see and value all Christian brothers and sisters. We are the body of Christ. We need to treat each other with respect and love and care as unto the Lord at all times. Notice with me, letter B, the prohibition to masters. We see the principle. Christ is to be at the center. They're to love, they're, they're to treat their, uh, do, fulfill their duty as unto the Lord. But notice the prohibition to the masters toward bondservants. In verse 9, notice what he says, and stop your threatenings. That's, that's a direct command, right? Stop your threatenings. Now, do you think threatening and mistreatment would have been commonplace among this relationship between slaves and masters in that day and time? Absolutely it would. Paul's assuming they're doing it. He's telling them, stop. Stop doing what you're doing. He knows. You see, this is how it was through history. Israel experienced this in their past, this harsh treatment in slavery. Exodus 1, 13 through 14, we recall that, that when they were in slavery, before they were liberated, they were under harsh, harsh rulership. 
The Bible says the Egyptians, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It was customary for masters to be harsh. But here's where we see a great change. What was to happen when a master was made a new creation by the gospel of Christ? his whole approach and understanding as a master would change. Instead of treating his servants harshly, he would treat them lovingly. Instead of treating them unfairly, he would treat them rightly and justly, as Paul commands in Colossians 4.1. And can you think for a moment what a dramatic difference this treatment would make upon a servant who did not yet know Christ? This master who was once a vile, uh, mistreating man, now all of a sudden has a warm, tender heart towards his slave. The slave thinks, what's gotten into that guy? Tell you what's gotten into him. Christ has gotten into him. It's a gospel witness here. Notice with me, letter C. We see the perspective of the masters with bondservants. There's something they keep in mind. Verse 9. He says to them to fulfill their duty, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Here's what Paul's reminding them of. Both groups of people have to know something. And at the central, what they're to know is that the Lord is who they're accountable to. Their true master is Jesus Christ. You see, being the master in heaven, he has all authority to rule over them. Being the one master of both the slave and the earthly master means there's not one of them who is better than another. If they are in Christ, they are equal. And thus Paul says that with Christ as the true master, there is no partiality with him. Why is there no partiality? Because in God's eyes, there is no distinction of race or social statuses. You are equal before God. Colossians 3.28, I mean, excuse me, Galatians 3.28 makes this very plain. Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's a unity among God's people, no matter who they are, where they are, where they've been. And that is what we must see. You see, the Lord does not have favorites, nor does He show honor to one over the other because they have a better earthly position than someone else. So the masters who had authority over the servants were to know and to live by that fact that they had a master in heaven that they're accountable to. Number three this morning, and lastly, I want you to see the implication for Christians today, because what I've given you is primarily the cultural and social context of that day, because that's who he's writing to, slaves and masters in that era. But that does not mean that there's not application for us. I've broken it down to two very simple things. Christians today should labor or work for the glory of Christ. This is what I want you to take away, Christian. Your work is all for the glory of Christ. I don't know what kind of work you do. Whatever it is, it is for the glory of Christ. Now, it's quite obvious in this present context, we're not slaves and masters, right? 
might feel like a slave to your nine to five or whatever job you got. It might feel that way sometimes, but you're, you're not really under their, their, their possession. But that doesn't mean that you can't glean the principles here. Now, here's what I want you to consider. If Paul gave such direct instructions to slaves who were in bondage about their work, how much more should these truths apply to us who have freedom in our work? Christians need to be genuine Christians in the workforce. We're meant to permeate the world by being Christians wherever we are. You see, we need to understand that work is a gift from God. It's not a curse. And as Christians, we are called to work in many ways, in many vocations. Now, regardless of what your calling is, what your job is, whether it's great or small, whether it's high salary or low pay, you as a Christian are called to live out verses 5 through 8. You're called to do your very best all with Christ in view for His glory. You're called to respect those in authority over you. You're called to fulfill the job given to you. You're called to do your job with the right heart and give your best to the Lord. There is no place for lazy, attitude-filled Christians. That is a detriment to the name of Christ. You ought to work hard. You ought to give your best. Have respect. Respect the authority over you. That's what Scripture teaches us. In whatever vocation we're called to live in. The reality is we only get one life to make an impact in work, the way that we're called to work. Solomon put it this way, Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with half your might, with all your might. There's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol or the grave which you're going You know what he's saying? You've only got one life, and guess what? All the work you do here, you don't get to go back and redo it. You don't get to do it again. You're going to die. And what was your life? Did you work hard? Did you make a difference? Did you yield it to God? You see, we only get one life to labor as unto the Lord, and that labor we give, understand, it has both temporal and eternal effects. Now, Paul said it this way in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1558, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, I want you to see this. Do not think that work for the Lord is limited to the gospel ministry and it has to be related to the church. It's not. All work is always unto the Lord, no matter what calling. And this is why I want to encourage you to not take the little things for granted. The little things. John Stott put it this way, and I think he summarizes it well. It is possible for the housewife to cook a meal as if Jesus Christ were going to eat it. Or to spring clean the house as if Jesus Christ were the honored guest. It's possible for teachers to educate children, for doctors to treat parents and nurses to care for them, for shop assistants to serve customers, accountants to audit books, and secretaries to type letters as if each case they were serving Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of Christ. See, most people tend to only focus on the nature of their job when in reality they ought to be focused on being faithful to their, in their job. So we need to have Christians who labor for the glory of Christ, but let her be. And lastly, Christians should lead for the glory of Christ too. What does this mean? If you're a Christian in a position of leadership, as in a master, but not in the same context, 
You've got people under you that you direct. You ought to behave like Paul instructs them here too. Though you're not a slave owner, like in the ancient world, you still carry authority and influence over those who work under you. You must fulfill, verse 9, you must respect your workers. Treat them kindly. Deal with them fairly and do everything as unto the Lord. John MacArthur comments and says a Christian employer's relationship to his employees should have the same motivation and goal as a Christian worker's relationship to his employer, the desire to obey and please the Lord. I think as we've looked at all of this, while we're not in the same context as Paul's audience of his day with that cultural slavery, the principles found here, are so greatly needed for Christians today in the workplace. We need to please our Master, the true Master, Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us seek to please Him. Be hard-working, loving, respectful Christians in whatever it is that we are called to labor in. Let us make that commitment to do that today. Let's stand as we prepare for a closing song. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Father, for the scriptures that make things so plain to us, that tackle really every avenue and area of our life. You've not left anything unturned in which we can glean from your word what we ought to do and how we ought to live. Father, we're meant to be a light for Christ no matter where we're at. And that includes in the workplace. Father, it's my prayer that you help us to have that conviction that whatever kind of work it is we're doing, that we do it for your glory, chiefly and firstly. That we have respect for those who we work with and work under and work over. That we bring glory to the name of Christ who has saved us because truly we are a bondservant of him. And he is a worthy master. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.